0: This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chaz Emmerich. Hey, Chaz. How you doing? Good. So I read on your blog, you wrote a blog post about 100% time. Sure. Where you say, you basically, you now have complete freedom over deciding what you're going to do with your time. And I'm curious w- how you spend it now, given that.
1: So, uh, I guess I should have like reread all my the past years' worth of blog <laughs> posts. I'm or throw them back at you. Right, right, right. <laughs> yep. Um, and so I talked about this to in in some length on uh, uh, the Relevance Podcast, now the Cognicast, some months ago. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to it, uh, so the so the basic premise is that I sort of accidentally put myself into a position where, like you say, I have the sort of economic circumstances where I have far more freedom and uh, sort of agency in what I do Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis and also sort of more strategically, so to speak, uh, in terms of, you know, what sort of categories of activities or, you know, more professionally, what sorts of projects I take on and that thing and Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, that sort of thing, as opposed to sort of being at the behest of, clients or customers necessarily on sort of a day-to-day kind of cadence Mm -hmm. like in 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 no way am i retired at all i I, i'm I'm actually a bit of a workaholic and that's a tendency that the whole 100 percent time post was sort of part of me working through dealing with that Mm. just because i really have had been a workaholic to an extent that was very detrimental to me personally and Hmm. also professionally. Uh, And so over the years where I sort of got myself into a position where that didn't need to be the case, uh, it's sort of a process of realization of that and trying to figure out what that means for life, you know, when you don't feel like you need to be under the gun constantly. Mm-hmm. What do you do with, you know, it's called slack time Not now, but, you know, some years before it was just slacking off. Mm. Uh, and so I think there's something in the zeitgeist where there's uh, slack time isn't slacking off necessarily. It's room to do big think uh, perhaps, or otherwise recharge or, you know, think outside the box, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, whatever sort of bubblegum phrase you want to put on it. But it is a very good thing to have that kind of freedom. So in terms of what I'm working on, uh, I mean, I do a lot of open source work in the closure area specifically. Mm-hmm. Part of the 100% time, although I don't think I realized it at the time, was writing the book for O'Reilly on closure. Mm-hmm. And since that finished, uh, I've been working on really largely one project, uh, which you're going to scoop something now. Nice. Right? Because I haven't, I haven't talked publicly about it yet, and I'm not talking a lot about it, but uh, at quilt.org. Uh, like the blanket Mm -hmm. quilt.org is sort of the homepage or the nascent homepage for what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing there yet, uh, except like a blank to put in your email address. But it's something I've been working on in one shape or another for about two years. And uh, it's really a way to sort of a recharacterization of how to organize data really in a very broad way, not just within a particular application or for a particular language or a particular company, but hopefully a holistic approach to how we organize, query, and compute over data on a worldwide scale, we hope, hmm. which Which makes me sound like a ridiculous uh, egomaniac, but that's sort of the nature of these things.
0: Hmm. So can you give me a little more detail or like a use case or?
1: Yeah. So. Um, this is actually something I'm going to be talking about a little bit at the Philly ETE conference next week, Mm -hmm. not quilt itself, but sort of some of the, uh, difficulties and sort of discomfort that I've had with how we do, how we do data and computation. Mm. Um, and so the focus of that talk is about what the notion of quote unquote, an API looks like within a world of distributed systems. You know, the, the, the modern notion of an API is this sort of very point to point synchronous communication between two discrete processes that are exchanging data that they can each either produce or parse. Uh, and it's a very fragile uh, and a very unscalable and undistributed mode of communication and computation. Mm. And it's, it's a very stark contrast when juxtaposed with what the world is becoming more and more, which is these very diverse uh, sort of diaspora of distributed systems where you know you have companies running systems that work with data that need to interoperate with other companies that have similar but different data and individuals that have their own stores of that data that they either need to collaborate with these companies in, in order to share, say, healthcare records from you know, a provider to another provider to your own archive to et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And sort of there's a disconnect there in terms of what The modern notion of an API is and the things that we want to accomplish in the world beyond you talking to me. And that's sort of the end of the conversation. There's always multiple parties involved uh, and there's always sort of a sloppiness in the data and the schemas that represent how that data is represented. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'll be talking about in the talk. And Quilt in part is aiming to provide some characterization of a way to sort of get over that disconnect.
0: Hmm. So is Quilt a, a service or is it a tool? Is it a um do you know yet
1: yes to all those uh so everything that i've been building is going to be open sourced and then there's some various ways in which i'm going to uh offer some commercial services around it mm-hmm. uh but everything that i've been working on and uh that will be associated with the, that quilt.org site will be open sourced and you can run your own quilt services locally and that sort of thing if you want to do mm-hmm. uh, so everybody will be able to play with
0: it eventually okay cool so stay tuned for that right Cool. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how you got to the point where you're able to focus on these these fun big projects, like a little bit of that history and sort of PDF, uh, your PDF thing.
1: The PDF thing? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wrote it down. PDF text stream.
1: Right, right, right. Snowtide.com for all of your PDF extraction needs. Mm-hmm. Um, God, this is ancient history now. So the company's name is Snowtide, uh, very badly named, but I came up with it almost exactly 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, founded the company in 2000. Failed with a totally unrelated product. Ended up with something like 140 grand in debt mm. because I was bootstrapping and did it badly. Okay. Um, Credit card debt then, or something? Yeah, yeah. So I I put myself through college in large part by selling stuff on eBay. Okay. In particular, FireWire drives. I don't know if you remember those things. Barely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this this was. We're now going back like. 17, 18 years, Mm -hmm. uh, where I was, uh, I would buy all the parts, including an, an enclosure Mm -hmm. and an internal, uh, IDE drive. I would put them together and sell them as a firewire drive on eBay. And there were no companies making things that were labeled as firewire drives at the, at the time. So the percentage margins were fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the actual revenue numbers were paltry, but were pretty good for a college kid just paying the bills. Mm -hmm. So anyway, through that process, I, I, bootstrapped that business up through credit cards. And so I had 50 or 60 grand and float at any point in time on credit cards. But because of the way payment grace periods worked and things like that, I never paid any interest. And basically, you know, Chase and Citibank ended up financing my little eBay business, which yep. thank you. Yeah. So I had, uh, for better or worse, I had access to a pretty sizable credit line when I was done with that business essentially. hmm and, you know, I live in western Massachusetts. There's no such thing as venture capital and all that sort of stuff out here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fifteen years ago I was uh fifteen years younger in terms of my business sense and what I was looking to build to begin with, never mind the sales size of things. So the first iteration of snow tide failed badly mm-hmm. and along with that hunger forty grand. So then I went back to not back to, I had to go get a job. Uh, so I worked uh, for about two or two and a half years, paid off the debt and sort of reformulated some way to get out of that circumstance because, you know, working where I was, uh, wasn't really working out for me. It was an insurance company. It was mm-hmm. a fairly staid culture, not very technically forward looking. Uh, it didn't really push my buttons in in all the various ways.
0: And did you want to get out of that because of what that particular thing was, or were you more generally like, I really want to run my own business. I want to do my own thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I've had two jobs. Well, yeah, two jobs where I, where I was actually the employee in my life, Mm -hmm. this one with the insurance company. And then for about three months, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I worked at a little local computer shop, like putting together apple talk networks or something. Mm-hmm. Um and other than that all the money I've ever made in my life has always been through either little companies I've started or you know maybe moderate small to moderate sized companies that I've started since then. Mm-hmm. Um and so my 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 dad had his own business. He was a mecha- a mechanic, but he started a local business where he would go to your house and work on your or your place of business and work on your car instead of you dr- driving somewhere and bringing it. So hmm. that was sort of my role model in terms of here's a different way of working as opposed to like you go somewhere, you clock in, you do your work and you clock out. Mm-hmm. That was sort of a formational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, working for other people has never really appealed to me. I forget who wrote it, but um, I think it might have been the CD baby guy. Uh, you have to decide whether you're going to be rich or you're going to be king. Mm. Uh, in terms of when you, when you start a company, you can either you know, uh, seek financing uh, and in general, uh, you will have the resources available to scale whatever business you're in to a level far beyond if it was just you starting it on your own from a financial standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, but you'll likely have uh, less of the outcome. That's the, that's the sort of rich path. And the king path is where you or some small set of partners without outside financing, you retain 100% of the proceeds and the interest in the uh, business concern. And so you end up with a smaller outcome total or smaller potential outcome, uh, but you have total control of the business. Yep. To date, I've always sort of tilted towards the latter, uh, where I very much like having that uh, sort of self-determination aspect to things. So yeah, I was, I was working at this insurance company and the people were great. Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, big company jobs, it was, it was fantastic, but I definitely wanted to have my own, have my own is, is roughly the simplest, best way to put it.
0: Yeah. You wanted to be king.
1: Right. Some of the work on the failed project from a couple of years prior included trying to get content out of PDF documents, uh, and, you know, I sort of very personally felt the need for something like that in the Java space, which is where I was operating. Uh, there wasn't anything useful or practical. Uh, and so I sort of extracted that piece from the prior project and sort of built it out into something more substantial. Mm-hmm. 10, 12 years later, presently, it's got many hundreds of customers and processes many billions of documents yearly. Mm. does very well for them and very well for very well for me. Mm.
0: So do you run this as a service or is this something that I download and nope. it works?
1: It's a very traditional software sales model. So uh, you get a perpetual license to run it on one server. It's a, it's a per server licensing model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a yearly support and maintenance component to get updates and more uh, timely uh, support responses, et cetera. Yep. That model grew out of when I started that pr- product line. So like you know, 2004, that's the way software was sold. Yeah, totally. Um, and actually, it it still uh, very much matches up with the expectations of the sort of core uh, uh, customer base, which is large enterprises uh, doing publishing, involved in finance, uh, government, et cetera, et cetera, where you know they have a particular application or maybe an outward-facing product, and they are going to allocate end machines to run this thing on because they know how much load they're going to be putting on the thing. They have all these other things that are associated with the application in terms of databases and compute power and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they know how many machines they need and they come to me with an order.
0: Huh. So with your tool, PDFs come in and out comes data.
1: Uh, So, yeah. So all this time, and I haven't actually given the pitch on the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so PDF TextStream is a library for extracting uh, content very broadly writ uh, from PDF documents, including text, metadata, form data, annotations, attachments, etc. It, it used to be just text, which is where the name came from. But mm-hmm. customer demand, being what it is, you sort of start adding more and more things. And so, I'm actually it's at version 2.7 right now. Uh, for version three, uh, a image extraction component is going to be added. And that's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of it being this single monolithic product. So starting with version three, it's going to be you buy into this very minimal base that will be fairly inexpensive and then add form extraction, add text extraction, add the image capability uh, sort of as add-ins or features. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of better aligns with user usage as well. So they'll bring a little sanity to the naming of the product as well as also sort of positioning it within the market.
0: Gotcha. This product exists because people get data in a format that they don't actually want it, they want it in a different format. Well so It's like fundamentally glue, right? Glue for a yeah. it almost or not like it's like a balm for a problem. Right. Like if they could just get JSON or something. Right. Then. Yeah. This yeah thing disappears. Yeah. So
1: I mean, this is I mean, here's where worlds start colliding. Right. So the, so what I was talking before about how uh, uh, Quilt is aiming to address this uh, world where you have multiple parties dealing with da- data that either has no schema or sort of a messy uh, heterogeneous schema that is uh, shared by many people in a distributed way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only reason why PDF TechStream exists is because you have, you know, company A has invoices and they're sending it out to companies, you know, A through Z, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and all those different companies need to take that invoice in, somehow percolate it through whatever internal process they have to land it into their, you know, master purchasing database that they can go do actual work with. Right? Uh, and so that entire, like, ingestion process is fundamentally waste, right? right? It's not contributing at all to the Friction. advancement. Right. Yeah. It's it's not contributing at all to the advancement of the business objectives or bettering life for any of the employees or customers or anybody involved in, in the uh, process. It's It's purely incidental complexity right. that derives from this sort of impedance mismatch between you communicating with me, communicating with and other people over this this pool of very messily defined data, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, PDF TextStream is sort of, it improves on that process sort of incrementally by giving people, so PDFs are a horrible format for interchange of data. Mm-hmm. There's no structure at all. It's worse than HTML in terms of actually providing some kind of semantic structure to the data. It's more like each page is a, Graphics context, basically a you know JavaScript canvas mm-hmm. onto which the PDF instructions write a character at a time, uh, and so you can imagine deriving some structure out of that, which PDF TextStream does. It's it's roughly like a uh, OCR process, optical character recognition, without the character recognition, because we already have the character, mm-hmm. but we have no notion of word, line, paragraph, column, table etc. Right. So there's other open source libraries that will just give you a dump of all the characters that are encoded yep. but the characters can be encoded out of order from what the reading natural re- reading order is within the document uh, just because of the implementation details of the library that produced the PDF to begin with. Wow. Um weird. yeah, so I mean PDF is derived from PostScript which is uh, which is the language that's used to send pages to printers, right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in PostScript that says you have to output a page top to bottom, left to right. And certainly, if you're talking about a world where you have both left to right languages, as well as things like Arabic and Hebrew and Urdu, et cetera, et cetera, that go right to left, and even languages that go uh, that have a vertical orientation like Chinese, Japanese, and Korean can, you know, there's no hard and fixed rules about the order in which characters need to be put out to a page. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so. and so PAF Tech stream sort of normalizes all that and pre- presents this direct API to the end user where it's like, give me the text, make it in the order that you expect to appear in, then you have a string, and then you walk off with it wherever you need to. Yeah. As opposed to other libraries where it's just like, here's a dump of all the character codes that occur within the page. And there's other u- utilities that make things easier, like just give me the text and where this bounding box is, which is good for automating form extraction, that kind of thing.
0: So if quilt is very successful will it hopefully kill your older business?
1: Um yes, uh I mean yes, uh although the connection between the two is extremely tenuous mm-hmm. that I sort of just came up with off the top of my head just yeah. now. Uh but it but it's but it's true that it's if it ends up exceeding all my wildest uh, wildest dreams then then you would have then you would be able to exchange Uh, quilt data without any of that ingestion process you wouldn't have to convert it over to a local representation that sort of thing just because quilt's natural representation is rich enough to express certainly everything i've seen in the pdf world for example
0: Hmm. does that business the pdf text stream does it run pretty much on its own do you spend a lot of time on it
1: it sort of comes and goes in spurts so there's definitely uh you know inquiries and problems that uh customers have and those get answered uh very sort of Immediately, uh, I'm 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 very big at, in in providing very rapid and uh, you know quality customer support. Mm-hmm. That's a key differentiator actually within the market that it's in cause, because enterprise software vendors generally are horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I'm if my customers are generally used to that, and I can I can provide uh, you know rapid responses that are potentially deeply technical and you know get them in and out of this problem that they wish they didn't have in the first place as fast as possible then that's to my benefit obviously for sure um so in that way the 100 percent time post kind of overstates it a little bit because Mm -hmm. there are you know customer has a problem i'm not just gonna say well i feel like going hiking today so Mm -hmm. forget about that i'll i'm you know definitely going to be on it and tackling whatever bug there is and maybe it's going to require some research or whatever in which case it'll, it may take a day or it may take three days but again that's still still outpacing their expectations and because it's not a service oriented business I don't I'm not a, on a pager and that sort of thing yep. so I mean it's uh, a sizable amount of time but it's by no means what I do all the time mm-hmm. so I have other people that help with various other aspects of the of the business including Nailing down sort of run of the mill bugs and issues that come that uh, come along. That's just sort of good business to to make it so that the more mundane questions can be answered by somebody else. But if there's a if there's a novel issue or something that's sort of highly technical, then I definitely pick it up and and do what's necessary.
0: Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about uh, closure. Sure. Yeah. So you uh, authored a book called Programming Closure for O'Reilly. Mm-mm-mm. No, you didn't. Closure programming. There you go. Closure programming. There it is.
1: The one with the bird on it. Oh, yes. they both have birds on it. Actually, do they? They do. Program enclosure has a uh, not a swan. Oh, maybe it is a swan. Ours has a painted snipe.
0: A painted snipe. A snipe is a real thing.
1: A painted snipe is a real thing. It's like a watershed bird. You know, the little birds that run through the breaking waves. Oh, and okay. Huh. The surf. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, the the O'Reilly book is the O'Reilly book is, is the one. You can't really miss the O'Reilly covers. No, they, definitely they've not. done a good job on their marketing. Hmm. So I co-wrote it with uh, Brian Carper and Christoph Grand. It's done reasonably well as far as technical books go. I don't really have any frame of reference, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's done reasonably well. Mm-hmm. People seem to like it enough.
0: Yeah. Are you planning on another edition by any chance?
1: Not at the moment. Uh, we did just finish sort of uh, a big run through of the reader submitted errata. Mm-hmm. Again, this is my s- sort of first time through this particular dance, but... I think that's going to end up translating out into like an update to the ebooks that people have purchased through O'Reilly and uh, maybe a refresh on certain print editions somewhere. I'm not quite sure how that percolates through. But the thing about closure is that it's actually – there have been very significant uh, changes in – uh, implementation details to make the language and its uh, runtime library more efficient but very very few language changes between the version that the book targets which is a minimum of 1.3 and uh, 1.6 was just released uh, yep. a couple of weeks ago. This is totally my opinion but i i actually wouldn't make any substantial changes to the language portion of the book now uh compared to what we wrote back then there have been a couple of feature additions like tag reader literals and things like that i mm-hmm.
0: think that's new right? yeah
1: but that's technically not a language i mean it's, feels, it's a library yeah yeah i mean it it apparently it was slated to be in addition to the language but it was discovered that because of the macro system, you, it ends up not having to be part of language, which is pretty cool in and For of sure. itself. totally. Um, so that actually wouldn't have any bearing on the language side of the book. The couple of things that would be left out for the audience that the book is targeting, which is people coming from Java, Python, and Ruby, mm-hmm. um, reducers and the tag reader literals are the two big feature editions between 1.3 and 1.6 that the book doesn't cover. Mm. And uh, reducers absolutely have value and you should sort of know about them by the time you get to be reasonably proficient with the language, it's good to know that they exist. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, reader literals. You'll, you'll come across them through the natural course of using newer versions of closure. Mm. But in neither case are they sort of essential to understanding the core idioms of the language and how to go about uh, building and understanding closure code. And actually, in, in the case of both, they're not how to use them well is actually not well known necessarily by many. Uh, Mm -hmm. they're very esoteric corners of the language that, uh, require a lot of sort of good taste to use. And Mm. personally, I'm not quite sure I, I even have a handle on it. So I wouldn't put in a book meant for sort of advanced intermediate people coming in from other languages. The, the library and tools part of the book, uh, could use an update, but that's sort of the nature of adding in tools and library bits into a book like this. Sure. Of course. Um, and so it's a question of, you know when O'Reilly wants to pull a, pull the trigger on that, mm. and uh,
0: it's it's interesting though to me. I, there's a, I saw a guideline somewhere when you're contributing code to Closure or Closure Contrib or something, it says you know most important get the name and the arguments correct or the name and the signature correct of the function. You know what it takes and what it returns, and then you can you know refactor the internals as much as you want without breaking other people's code. Sure, and it sounds like Closure has achieved that pretty well.
1: Uh yeah so i mean so there there are programs that were written for you know pre closure 1.0 from 5 years ago that still work and work as as intended so mm-hmm. one, of, one one of the the only example of this i know sort of off the top of my head uh is the ants demo that uh rich hickey put together And actually demonstrated for the first time at uh, the Western Mass Developers Group, Mm. like five and a half years ago, maybe, or something like that. Mm. It's a Java 2D demonstration of a simulation of ants running around sort of a game field that has, uh, you know, like a home base for the ants and then little food pods. And each ant is represented by a ref, uh, which is one of Clojure's uh, reference values that has a certain set of... Uh, semantics for its concurrency and uh, change semantics, mm-hmm. um, and that demo, which was written, yeah, five years ago, still works on the most recent version of Closure. So it's it's had a sort of compatibility uh, forward, forwards and backwards compatibility is a big virtue in the Closure space, uh, and sort of exemplified by the language.
0: Mm-hmm. So you are you do a lot of open source work too in Closure, Closure Script. Fair to say that you're a pretty big fan. It seems like.
1: Yeah. So I, I've been, aside from the PDF business, I've been, that's been my primary playground for probably four and a half years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly done other things here and there as needed, but it gives me a lot of flexibility and uh reasonable set of, of uh, performance characteristics, uh, a good uh, escape hatch to Java if I need to, uh, and even to native libraries if I need to. Mm-hmm. And I've been working on the JVM in one form or another for almost 20 years <laughs> good grief yeah uh so it's so it's a, it's a it's a it's a very comfortable environment
0: yeah what can i ask you about your open source contributions do you want to talk do you have anything that you're excited about that you're gearing up on or
1: well so the so the quilt stuff is all going to be open source but that's i mean that's the that's the gearing up section yeah um, i mean a lot of the stuff that i do and that i'm known for is is sort of very stable and uh it's it's largely a matter of maintenance and helping people through issues and things like that. I sort of, through dint of circumstance, am uh, maintaining a bunch of libraries and tools around Closure Script, just because a couple of other contributors sort of fell off and got interested in other things. Mm-hmm. So Line CLJS build, uh, I took over as steward of uh, some months ago and have sort of cleaned it up here and there and uh, have some. I think, pretty reasonable changes that I'm going to be pushing through for a version two. One thing that I have been very pleased about is uh, the the testing story around ClojureScript. So I ported uh, Test, which is the unit test quote-unquote framework. Uh, it's really just a very small library with one or two macros from Closure. To Closure Script, and uh, just recently, maybe a month ago or so, added uh, async support to that, uh, so that you can test code that is portable between Closure and Closure Script uh, in an asynchronous way in both environments, uh, and that includes using core async or JavaScript futures and Closure features on the JVM side. And so hmm. there's a there's a lot of interesting things around the testing story. Hmm. But yeah, otherwise, I'll, I have a bunch of libraries and and tools out there that are sort of in maintenance mode, but for good reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. So a little bit earlier, you mentioned um, workaholism yeah, and how it had been detrimental to you in the past. Yeah, What did that look like?
1: Oh man, this is like a, this is a Barbara Walters, like weeping on the couch kind of thing now.
0: <laughs> I don't think we've had any weeping on the podcast <laughs> yet. So,
1: uh, so the real, uh, workaholism issue, uh, cropped up when I was in the process of uh, failing badly with the first iteration of Snowtide. This is like circa two thousand, two thousand one, mm-hmm. um, and I was just burning every possible end of every candle I had. Mm-hmm. Um, probably how many hours are in the week? I don't know. I'm not so good with arithmetic while yeah. I'm yakking, but you know, eighty plus 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 hours a week, and uh, I sort of don't remember a whole lot about that period in my life aside mm-hmm. from working. That, that, that wasn't healthy for, wasn't healthy for me. I gained, I gained probably, uh, 70 pounds. Wow. Uh, I got up to, I got up to 265, 270, uh, wasn't great for my family. The, the woman who is now my wife, we had moved in together, but, uh, I was neglecting her, something fierce, mm-hmm. uh, and she was coping with it somehow. Mm. So I mean, things things ended up working out okay in the end. But it was a it was a pretty dark time and wasn't good for anybody and had a horrible outcome to boot. Mm. Um, and so something I hopefully a a lesson that I only had to learn once. Just yeah. because I mean now I still work a lot. Uh, up at four thirty or five, and I usually go a full twelve hours with like a break for lunch and exercise in between, and or doing other things like. Helping out my mom or whatever mm-hmm. uh, but aside from that uh i I'm, I'm I'm still working a lot, but it's sort of a there's a there's a cadence to it and mm-hmm. it's uh it's a marathon I can run for the long haul as opposed to this constant sprint mentality that uh you know I should have had this stuff done yesterday kind of thing
0: yeah were there other people involved in this during this time this first business or was it just you
1: no i had I had employees, which is part of what accounts for the hundred and forty thousand dollar misery gotcha yeah. um and an office and all sorts of really stupid things. Uh or stupid given my level of capitalization, which was to say none.
0: Right. Or so, negative.
1: Or negative, right. Yeah, there were other employees. Um yeah, it just wasn't it wasn't wise, smart in any way. And my girlfriend at the time and uh my family said, you know, maybe maybe this isn't quite right which I just sort of poo pooed as, you know, family being family or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had, uh, you know, I had a lawyer and an accountant and other sort of professional contacts, and nobody said, hey, this doesn't look right, yeah. just because, you know, their their interests weren't necessarily li- aligned with my interests, you know. Um, and so that's sort of a, a regret that I didn't have anyone – any sort of independent third parties that could provide that sort of feedback and mm-hmm. you know raise the warning flags and say this isn't this isn't going in a good place mm-hmm. um, so
0: yeah, you and I were talking a little bit earlier uh, about podcasts, and you were saying, oh, I get a little bingy with podcasts sure. and also other things, sure, <laughs> so is your personality seems to be a little bit wired that way
1: uh, yeah, um
0: towards I guess intensity or sort of like a, a lot of stuff
1: yeah it's always uh not to t- totally doing a disservice to people who actually have a you know diagnosed condition but i would sort of naturally OCD mm-hmm. uh you know when I when I have something in my teeth and that's that's what I'm working on having for somebody suggests I do something other because it, it, the the blinders go up because I'm heading in that direction that's my natural tendency yeah which lends itself very well to doing programming yeah right? totally I was just because i mean about. you have to or any kind of analytical task mm-hmm. where you know you have this set amount of work and you know what the end state looks like that you want to get to mm-hmm. and uh it's it's just a matter of doing the work and 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 grinding it out to mm-hmm. to to some extent in a lot of cases with most of the problems that we have to work with um and so a lot of the work that i've been doing sort of on a personal level has been trying to be mindful about that impulse and making sure that I have the perspective necessary to sort of pull back and know when I should stop and think and look for a better solution, per- perhaps, or say, you know, the uh, outcome is not correlated with the amount of work that I'm putting into it, right? I'm not gonna get back my investment on this particular obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah.
0: Hmm. So you're clearly a big fan of closure. Do you have any other favorite languages?
1: I've always been fascinated with concatenative languages, so Factor being the most recent popular example there, uh, Forth obviously being the, the granddaddy of those. I really enjoy working in C when I can. Mm. Uh, what does
0: it mean for a language to be concatenative?
1: You're asking something that probably has a very precise answer. I'm going to give a very hand wavy, imprecise, incorrect answer, but uh, where the primary operation is to operate over a stack, which generally means concatenating items onto the stack or popping items off through an application of a function to that stack, which pulls its arguments from it and then. Pushes its result back onto it, mm. um, and so there's there's a number of ways in which concatenative languages can be used to implement a variety of algorithms very efficiently, mm. uh, and also you can target concatenative languages to a number of different architectures very efficiently. Um, so it compiles nicely down into assembly or to JVM bytecode or on and on and on. Uh, just because the the model lends itself very nicely to the von Neumann architecture essentially hmm. um or that's my rough understanding what never having it? implemented a fa- a fourth or whatever
0: what's the van neumann architecture von neumann von neumann uh
1: that's the infinite paper tape with a read and a write uh gotcha uh, operation and so that's that's the von neumann architecture as opposed to uh the lambda calculus from the church theorem those are the two sort of competing not competing two sides of the same coin uh, uh characterizations of computation that Exist. I think there's another one in a very elevated intellectual space that has to do with uncomputable values. So if a, so if a particular computation will not terminate or sort of NP complete or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you can uh, postulate that there is an oracle that will provide that value in bounded space and time. And if you presume that, then a lot of algorithms that are otherwise uh, unimplementable become implementable. Uh, so it's a very rarefied space of computation where I think some principles apply that don't apply in lambda calculus or uh, von Neumann architecture. But that's all from me reading a couple of papers that I barely understood.
0: Yeah, I, I was just thinking I'd have uh, Tom Stewart on. He's the author of uh, Understanding Computation.
1: The... I'm sure he would have way more to say about this. than I. I'm, I'm a dilettante when it comes to uh, reading papers that are far beyond my means.
0: Mm. cool. So yeah, factor and fourth, oh, of those, yeah. you do a little bit of C.
1: I always I always enjoy dabbling in C just because of the sort of raw, dangerous power that it gives you. Um I've I've had to do C and C stuff for building executables that sort of do something and then bootstrap a JVM on top of it and then provide a nice bridge to a certain libraries in ways that like J N I or JNA, uh which are two APIs for accessing. Native libraries from the Java side don't provide um, other languages. I did a dangerous stint in uh, VimScript like six months ago when I was trying to stack asynchronous evaluation on top of it. It ended up basically working, except if I was using Mac Vim, it would segfault. But if I was using Vim on the command line, it was fine. So it was actually some uh, critical section in the Cocoa bindings, I think, is what was actually getting hosed by my asynchronous touching of the vim api is not what i was actually doing
0: what was the goal there
1: uh the goal there was to allow for asynchronous evaluation uh within vim fireplace of expressions being sent to a remote closure repl Uh, so if you perform an evaluation in vim fireplace the you know vim environment is locked up until it gets the result back and so that doesn't work for me I want to send off an evaluation send off an expression and have that running while I'm going doing other things or maybe you know heaven forfend I have two different processes that need to communicate and part of the testing and development involves like repling on both sides this is something that you should be able to do reasonably in a development environment as far as I'm concerned Uh, and so I wanted that and I sort of had gotten the Vim religion in terms of the way that it manipulates text and things like that mm-hmm. but the runtime was not keeping up in terms of my closure development and workflow mm. this is sort of harkens back to our conversation about me being too single-minded i started hacking away at Vimscript in order to get this working the way i wanted it to instead of backing up so eventually i backed up and now i use uh, evil with an emacs mm. so i have maybe the best of both worlds in terms of manipulation capabilities from evil and then you know emacs has a very reasonable runtime that provides sort of that asynchronous evaluation of things
0: Mm -hmm. i remember seeing from your the survey you did of the closure community that emacs was the the leading editor
1: yeah it sort of wins by default to a to a certain extent Mm -hmm. just because of the list heritage that feeds into it uh, as well as sort of the resurgence of emacs even outside of Closure and other LISPs, uh, I mean, it's used pretty widely in the Ruby community as far as I know. Yeah, it sort of gets the win by default, although uh, there's tons of development environments that uh, have sort of enough critical mass that you can reasonably depend on them for Eclipse and IntelliJ and uh, Vim. There's, you know, TextMate and uh there's all you know, subtext mm. and all the different editors that all have very reasonable closure bindings or plugins or whatever the local idiom is.
0: Yeah, I'm a bit bummed though as a Vim user to hear you you weren't successful with this.
1: Plenty of people use Vim and, yeah. are, and are very happy with it. I just happen to be working on you know network services and so I'd have two different processes hooked up that are talking to each other or I want end processes ultimately and I want to be able to send expressions to both and hmm. not necessarily have my editor block if... I have a bug in one, for example, that causes the expression that I evaluate not to respond, right? Mm. I want to be able to have that come back in 10 seconds or 20 or five hours. I don't, it shouldn't matter. And so there's a, I mean, this is a, this is a widely recognized issue with the runtime. I mean, the the editing system is sort of un, unparalleled, right? Yeah. But the runtime has its issues. And so there's actually, there's a guy that's often forked it and is working on making the runtime more modern. I'm sure there's a variety of other issues that it has from an architectural standpoint. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing if that pans out at all, though I sort of feel for uh, Bram, Molinar mm-hmm. uh, is the lead uh, developer of Vim. He's put a lot of work into Vim. I mean, nothing compared to a lot of people that say, you know, I do open source work. It's He's in there for decades. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long. Yeah, I think um, so. And so, so it's, it's, it's always a bummer to have someone come along and fork and try and go in a totally different direction. But hopefully there will be a reconciliation if, it, if the fork is actually productive in the way that it hopes to be, I guess.
0: Fingers crossed. Anything uh, I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about?
1: Nothing off the top of my head. We sort of opened up with the big thing that I've been uh, whacking away at for quite a while, so I don't have any new news to
0: spill. Okay, so if people want to hear more about that or if they want to be on the list, they can go drop their email in the in the box.
1: Quilt.org and uh, hopefully do a little good for the way data and computation are uh, represented and uh, performed.
0: Hmm. And um, we've had 90-something podcasts now. I'm pretty sure you're the first person to say heaven forfend. Cool. And you said it twice.
1: I hope there's proper analytics. I hope someone does like a uh, a word cram yeah. thing or a word cloud thing and shows up all my different speaking idioms.
0: I like it. The first thing we need is, is a service that extracts words from a stream of audio. Right. We'll, well call it PDF audio text. MP3 text, text stream. extraction stream. Text stream.
1: Yeah, there you go. I think Google has has a has a solution for you. <laughs> I think there, you might be right. I'm I'm guessing they'll probably miss Heaven for a friend. Yeah. Could be. With the automatic transfer. <laughs> Who knows what that thing, is like,
0: gonna like, come out as. Three times now. Well thanks for coming by, I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's good it. to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, it was great. Awesome. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash ninety-five. Thanks for listening. Thank you.